You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Every market cycle throws up human lightning rods, the bulls and bears whose high profile helps define the market of the day. Normally, these people disappear from view as quickly as they appeared, leaving behind them an internet history of claims and predictions which rarely age well. There are, however, market observers who've built careers on their ability to see both sides and help their clients survive bull and bear markets intact. Sometimes these people get the market wrong, but there's a discipline and intellectual honesty to their framework which makes them spend time trying to understand why they may have missed a turning point and then incorporating that knowledge to make sure they don't miss the same warning signs the next time around. One such man is one of the most widely respected Wall Street economists of his generation, someone who's been both bullish and bearish in his career, but always with conviction and always after thorough analysis of market conditions. Recently, He pricked up Wall Street's ears when he turned bearish for the first time in several years, and he joins us today to explain why. This week, on Adventures in Finance, David Rosenberg. Today is the 29th of March 2018, and welcome to episode 60 of Adventures in Finance. I am back in the Cayman Islands, sitting beside James Resplendent in a pair of, wait for it listeners, Star Wars pyjamas. It's very early. It is very early in the morning here. Um, uh, starting anything with it when it begins at the five is no fun, but... I thought I'd bring the force with me. <laughs> this, this, well, Today. <laughs> Do me a favour, just cross your legs so I can see R2-D2. Um, joining us from New York is uh, Alex. Alex, are you there? Come in over. And, and I'll have you know I'm in a full Star Trek commander's uniform, so I'm, I'm oh, dressed up. Yes. Brilliant. Wait, wait a minute. You, if you're a Star Wars fan, you can't say brilliant about Star Trek. I you, thought you this was like both. the sharks and the jets. You can never cross the streams or something. You was can that be both. Really? Yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Well, there's the first. Uh, so it's a the first Star Wars what, reference, a Star Trek reference, and and Grant jumps right in with a West Side Story reference. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, generations and generations. Anyway, look, enough of this nonsense about Star Wars and Star Trek and uh, Natalie Wood. Let's get into the podcast. Now we have a fantastic guest joining us shortly. Um, the magnificent David Rosenberg of Gluskin Chef up in Canada. We're going to talk about some of the calls he's made in the market, which have been absolutely sensational. But before we get there, uh, we have to get to our long short segment. Um, Alex, uh, there's a fair amount of excitement in James's booth this week about your short. Uh, so I'm going to let you go first. What have you got for us? Oh, well, well now we're, we're overplaying it, but but uh, I'm short sex. Okay, and you're long? 
So, so there, there's a story about Walt. You do realize this? This may have something to do with the Star Trek. <laughs> yes, that's that's right. <laughs> That's right. So uh, Walmart, uh, uh, the story about is about Walmart removing Cosmopolitan magazine from their their checkout lines. Um, basically, th- there's been uh, consternation about people seeing this magazine as they're going to check out, to, given that it often deals with sexual topics. Um, but Walmart said th- they were hearing these concerns, although they said it was primarily a business decision. And I grew up learning that sex sells. Um, it seems, you know, between this and the American Apparel bankruptcy, and it seems sex doesn't really sell anymore, so I, I think it's a good short. Interesting. This is very interesting. Um, let's just say, you said you grew up. When was that? I, <laughs> I'll get there one day. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not sure what to say about that. I, I wish they'd get rid of the candy at the checkout. That would be much more useful for me if there wasn't uh, that kind of temptation right before you get to, to pay for your groceries. Um, okay, my short this week, No. I'm going to go with my long this week first. My long this week is the future, uh, and specifically the future of the finance industry, because I was very fortunate to be asked to go and uh, moderate a session at the Harvard Business School last week. And I have to say, not only did they put on a fantastic conference, uh, organized in large part by the students, but um, what an amazing group of people, uh, just young, smart engaged it was it was a real treat to to meet these kids uh and spend some time talking to them so uh for the hospitality and and more importantly for what i saw on display in terms of intellect and engagement i am absolutely long the future so do you think all these stories about smart people going into the tech industry and forgetting about finance are maybe a little overblown Oh, look, I didn't say they were smart. I said they were nice. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, look, uh, look. Th- th- there's so much smart out there now. I mean, obviously, I'm at Harvard Business School, so sure. who knows? Maybe they go into uh, maybe they go into tech businesses. There are sort of a, a lot of people who look like they knew a thing or two about technology. There, I'll tell you that much. Certainly, no more than me. But it was just it was just really refreshing to see uh, such a fantastic group of of really smart people. I mean, hundreds of them. Uh, the questions were great. Um, you know, they were they were they were just they were just a revelation to me. So I, I am I am long the future, which is, you know, not something you normally hear me say, Alex. No, it's nice, very nice, very nice. All right, what's what's your long this week? Uh, I'm long incentives. So the Staples brothers, uh, Jamie and Matt Staples, are both professional poker players. Um, a year ago, uh, Jamie weighed 304 pounds, which is about 138 kilograms. Matt weighed 134 pounds, which is about 61 kilograms. Um, and they were challenged to, to a bet by uh, Bill Perkins, a, uh, a hedge fund manager, high stakes, uh, high stakes player, kind of a, a, a fun personality who offered them a bet where if they were, they had to put up $3,000. If they got within one pound of each other a year from that day, then they would win $150,000. So this, these That's two a lot brothers, of eating for the thin guy to do. Well, it, it it they ended up exactly at the same weight of 188.3 pounds on, on this past Sunday when they weighed in. So that, that, that means the thin guy gained about uh, 50 pounds or so, and Jamie lost, you know, 125 pounds thereabouts. So pretty impressive, but, uh, you know, for $150,000, I, I think, honestly, even for them, it probably wasn't about the money, more about the, the social media incentives where... They were posting everything they were eating, and everyone's kind of following them in that way. Yeah. But, but pretty impressive. That that is pretty impressive. I, I wonder how much food you can buy with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
Yeah, they, they, they could be fat for life if they wanted. This is uh, well. That's that's not the outcome we want from this uh, from this particular item. But that's amazing. That's yeah. so fifty pounds plus and a hundred pounds minus. Yeah, that's right. And and one hundred eighty-eight point three, like on the schnoz for both of them. It's just uh, wow. Yeah. That is extraordinary. Well, congratulations to the Staple Brothers. I, I presume this will now be known as the Staple Diet. <laughs> I'm here all week. Uh, okay, my short. My short this week. My short this week. I am short this week the reply to all email. Now, I'm getting a bit fed up with reply to all emails. I, I think it's a very good idea. However, people who send a reply to all email that includes about three words or one word are time wasters. And my inbox is filling up. You know who you are, people. You know who you are. When, the, when someone sends out an announcement, you don't have to reply to all and say, amazing. You could just reply to the person it's meant for. So I am massively short, massively short, the reply to all email that isn't of any use to anybody except the person, the one person on the list it was sent to. Are you listening to me out there, everybody? I think you know who you are. I'm sitting next to one of them. No, it's not me. But is I, that what you do? You are a culprit. You are a culprit, and I can show you the evidence. Yeah, it's 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 our lists every week that I send out. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I'm 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 strongly on board with this short. I'm I'm levering up and, and getting short little reply all email. So However, what's the etiquette though? Like honestly, I'll I'm tell you what the etiquette right is. Now. If someone sends an email around that says congratulations, Bob, on this, you send Bob a nice email and say, hey, Bob, congratulations. Ah. I do do that. I switch over to a completely Aha, different so server. No, no, no I, I, I do exactly what you say. I switch over to a completely different thing. Okay, I'm going to show you evidence later today is of, it one, of a reply is it to all piece? email from you that says the word amazing. <laughs> is it one piece? <laughs> I am going to send it to you. In fact, maybe we'll post it in the show notes. Um, no, the etiquette is you reply to the person it was addressed to saying, I congratulations, Bob, but that you've um, lost £103 and got the same weight as your brother. Nobody now, needs now, to hear you say... 19 times amazing or good news so has this all been stacking up and 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 this is oh i'm about to blow my friend (laughs) i am about to blow let me tell you now grant are there any words in is there is there a single word that you can think of in a reply all email that would say that you would say that's worth replying all with um alive (laughs) as in what's the status of this person yeah uh, as in, there's been there's been an earthquake. Well, I'm trying to find out where everybody is. Are you dead or alive? I, I would accept a reply to all that said alive. That would be okay, or dead for that matter. But that would be pretty a little bit harder to imagine how that could come about. Anyway, look, enough of this. I think I've made my point. I know who you are. Uh, let's get into this week's feature. And joining us from Canada, we have uh, David Rosenberg of Glasgow Chef, one of the preeminent market economists of his era. So, David, um, you and I met most recently at the Malden Conference out in San Diego a few weeks ago, and your presentation, uh, The Year of the Dog, Does It Bark or Bite, was, uh, went down, as usual, exceptionally well. So what I'd love to do at the beginning is perhaps if you could lay out the bare bones of that, because uh, I think it resonated with a lot of people in that audience. Right. Well, it was a reference, uh, of course, to the uh, uh, Chinese uh, zodiac uh, being the year of the dog, and um, took me back to uh, my days at um, at Merrill Lynch uh, because the last time it was the year of the dog was in 2006, which was the last full year 
uh, of the expansion when I was screaming from the mountaintop to uh, start um, the process of uh, taking risk off the table. Of course, you know, so many people think that you can actually time the peaks, but the most successful investors actually um, use a topping process as a process because uh, there's no magic wand or crystal ball or alarm bell that goes off to tell you exactly when the highs or where the lows are. It's really about playing the probabilities and understanding where you are in the uh, in the business and the market cycle. Of course, back then we were very late, uh, and I think this time around again we're very late. And the reference to uh, you know whether the uh, dog was going to bite once again referred to um, uh, the Federal Reserve, in particular uh, central bank policy. And it's interesting because I think it's human nature because uh, we're really born to be bullish in this industry. And I know that when the markets are going down and the Fed's cutting interest rates, the mantra is always don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. Yet it's interesting, and again, a commentary in human nature, that when the Fed is raising interest rates and flattening the yield curve late in the cycle, I don't hear anybody saying don't fight the Fed. Uh, and so um, I agree, we shouldn't be fighting the Fed, and the yield curve is flattening. Uh, you're seeing the action within the equity market. Um, you know, we're coming off a month, for example, where uh, the utilities have outperformed uh, the transports by almost 500 basis points. That's just one of other indicators right now, the volatility, um, the breakdown. And the growth stocks, um, I mean, really the markets are giving you on a silver platter the signal here uh, to start the process of de-risking the portfolio, increasing the quality if you haven't done so already. Now, you, you and I have met at the Malden Conference uh, for a number of years going back now, and, and you're always the what John calls his lead-off hitter. You know, you're the first guy up on the first morning of the conference. And I always pay very, very close attention to you because you've been very consistent for a number of years now. And to see you turn bearish really kind of pricked my ears up this year um, because of your past experience at these kind of turning points. When you go back to 06, uh, and at that point you were very famously screaming from the mountaintop, as you put it, um, but nobody seemed to listen to you. How how did you deal with that kind of frustration, if it was a source of frustration to you? And, and have you kind of changed the way you approach the message this way? Well, um, you know, answer the question, you just have to, um, you know, have tremendous resolve and, uh, you know, do your homework and back it up. Uh, I think that it's, it is very difficult as the markets overshoot uh, and you're viewed as being dead wrong, uh, even though your analysis is telling you that um, the only thing separating you and your call is timing. Um, now, look, you don't want to be crazy early and, uh, you know, to a fault. I was, I was, you know, people look back that I got the call right, but I was early. Uh, and I probably was too early. And uh, you do want to be early because, you know, um, you know, bull markets are escalators going up and, and bear markets are elevators going down. So nothing's wrong with being early, but you don't want to be crazy early. So uh, this time around, um, you know, I, I purposely positioned myself to not be crazy early. Uh, I was late coming into the cycle, being bullish. I started getting bullish in 2012, started turning more cautious, say, in 2016. Um, but I like to think that I caught, um, you know, 60% uh, of this bull market. And um, I don't claim to be a, a market timer. I don't think anybody really is. It's really, um, you know, being respectful of what the uh, of what the risks are, uh, the probabilities, uh, the risk really of um, what's the reward of being right, benchmarked against the cost of being wrong, and uh, in my 30 years plus in this industry, and I followed um, you know the 
Um, you know, the greatest um, portfolio managers and CIOs, I noticed that they are not the ones that buy at the lows. They're not the ones that sell the peaks. They're really the ones that do play the middle 60% effectively. And that's really the key to long-term investing. So um, what I did this time was I didn't stay uh, the perma bear like I did at Merrill, because at Merrill, I didn't even catch the 60% of the bull market back then. We had a bull market from 02 uh, to 07, and uh, I caught... <laughs> zero percent of it. Uh, and I really didn't quite understand uh, the power of the leverage and the power of the liquidity uh, that uh, could, that could drive the equity markets to that point, new highs by October 2007. Now, by then, um, you know, I was really pounding my fist on the table. Um, but the one thing I learned from that cycle is um, not to be stubborn um, and uh, to tell clients that, you know, this is actually what's driving equities higher. This will continue uh, for some time, um, and, um, and but also, also also to be willing to be cognizant of the downside risks. So I, I toned down my bearishness this time around compared to the last cycle. That's the learning lesson. Uh, and more recently, um, you know, trying to identify areas of the market that you can actually gravitate towards, uh, you know, in a, in a late cycle fashion uh, that could still actually make you money uh, even as the growth stocks. Uh, roll over, which is exactly what's happening right now. So very recently, for example, I've been telling clients, look, you don't have to abandon the stock market completely. Um, there are areas that are already priced for recession, um, and I speak uh, that are unloved, underowned, and very cheap. And right now, I'm focusing primarily on the North American uh, energy stocks, especially in Canada, uh, which are deep in the penalty box. But if you're looking for a deep value for areas that are effectively priced for recession, that give you a 4% yield and trade at uh, you know five times cash flows on next year's estimates, um, you can actually right now hide in the energy sector right now. It's probably not going to hurt you. I want to get back to some of the uh, specific opportunities with you, Dave, but I want to ask, uh, just zoom out a bit and what's happened over the past two months. Is it, there have been so many different factors that people have been able to point to from the tariff trade situation to specific news about uh, specific you know tech stocks. Is it ultimately the Fed that you see as, as responsible for the the downdraft that we've seen, and, and, and is it really fear about rising interest rates that's driving the recent market move, or, or is it a confluence of factors, or how do you kind of hedge that out? Well, look, there's no doubt that, um, you know, that the... Uh the trade side is, is problematic and, and uh, provides a certain dose of uncertainty. Um, but I, I think that this still comes down to uh, the Fed. And, and I, I would suppose that I'm biased from my own career because I started in the business on October 19th, 1987. A great day to start as an yeah. economist on uh, Bay Street uh, at the Bank of Nova Scotia. Um, but you got a real respect for what was happening then because, you know, you, you would have had people talking about how great the fundamentals were. The fundamentals back in the fourth quarter of 1987 um, were far stronger than they are today. Uh, I mean, um, profits were rising at, a, at, at 50% year over year. That's 5.0, not 1.5. Um, GDP growth was 7%, unemployment at a cycle low. We're coming off the full, first full year of what was truly historic uh, tax reform under Reagan. Uh, and yet, what happened? In you know hauntingly similar fashion to today, we have a new central bank chairman, Alan Greenspan, back then coming in, uh, raising rates, flattening the yield curve, and um, it wasn't just a 23% collapse. Um, you know, on Black Monday, interestingly enough, um, before Black Monday, uh, uh, it was Black Friday, uh, and um, we had really a 30% peak to drop decline uh, in the stock market that fall. So. 
Uh, we can talk about program trading, portfolio insurance being factors that um, accentuated the decline. Um, but it shows you how important interest rates are. It shows you how important the yield curve is. And it shows you how important liquidity is because fundamentals might be food uh, for Mr. Market, but liquidity is oxygen. And so the Fed came in, Greenspan raising rates, uh, and, the, and the stock market, which was overvalued at the time, and this stock market that we had coming into this year was even more overvalued. Uh, and then we go through a massive correction, uh, you know, still debatable as to whether it was a bear market. Most people say not because it was over so quickly. You can also measure bear markets, I think, not just in magnitude, but also in duration. And, and then next thing you know, Alan Greenspan is cutting interest rates dramatically uh, for the next several months, even at a time of full employment. And then we're off to the races. Uh, those interest rate cuts, you know, spur the bubble that we had in commercial real estate and the savings and loan industry. And so the Fed's back raising rates in uh, 88 and into 89, inverting the yield curve. And we go to a recession, uh, a real cyclical bear market back then. And then the Fed's cutting interest rates and the cycle goes on. But, um, you know, every single recession and every single expansion and every single bear market, every single bull market had the Fed's thumbprints all over it. Um, so the answer to the question is yes. I think that this very much, if you're looking at the inflection point, and the stock market was just only a couple of months catching on, the real inflection point uh, was when um, you know Powell was being viewed as the front runner to take over the Fed. Of course, uh, that happened. Um, but you go post Labor Day, and um, you look at the the two year note yield. That was the inflection point. I mean, it was 1%. We were priced for basically one rate hike this year. We've already seen the one. Now the debate is, do they go three or four at a time when we're one or two rate hikes away from the yield curve inverting? And of course, uh, you know, the pundits will, will find a new way to, to shrug that off like they have in the past number of cycles. Uh, but I think that is really the, 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 the overriding story uh, is that um, is, is Fed policy, not just Fed policy, um, but central bank policy globally, um, and it wasn't just about interest rates. Look what's happening with the balance sheet. Uh, and now you've got the ECB tapering. We're going to have a new um, ECB chairman announced in the next couple of months. It won't be a repeat of Mario Draghi any more than G. Powell was a repeat of Janet Yellen. I don't think he is at all. Uh, and then you've got uh, Mark Carney at the Bank of England talking about another rate hike in May with or without Brexit. The last man standing will be the Bank of Japan. But when you look, take a look at the G4 um, balance sheet, uh, at the peak of the market, uh, it was up 16% on a 12-month trailing basis. By this time next year, it's going to be contracting on top of uh, higher short-term interest rates. And we're seeing the impact that's having on LIBOR and whether or not that is, uh, you know, uh, alongside some other factors, causing LIBOR rates to go up. And it might not be reflecting any bank stress, but the reality is that trillions of dollars globally, household and, government and business debt are tied to that benchmark. So I think that, um, you know, late cycle, uh, higher interest rates, uh, balance sheet contraction. And when I look at the stock market and I split up liquidity and I split up fundamentals, uh, and everybody talks about the positive fundamentals, look, if this was just about positive fundamentals, the S&P 500 would have peaked out at 1,800. Uh, but it peaked out about 1,000 points north of that because of the excess liquidity. And what's happening now is with or without positive fundamentals, uh, the, the movie that's going to be running uh, backwards is going to be the liquidity story, and we should all be braced for it. Yeah, it's funny, Dave. As as, as you're talking there, I'm I'm jotting a few questions down, and, and one by one, you're answering them with your next sentence. But you know, I, I, this has been to me the biggest puzzle. Um, this this lack of any seemingly lack of any reaction in the markets, and by that I, I guess I mean the equity markets, 
and maybe the bond markets to this tightening of liquidity. I mean, you, you know, the point you made was absolutely right. You know, interest rates and liquidity uh, and, and Greenspan's moves back in 87, which um, went on for several months, but he had room to cut there. You know, the, the thing that amazes me, if you look over time, it's I think the average is between three and 500 basis points of easing for every recession we come into. I mean, yes, the Fed are desperately trying to give themselves some headway, but they don't have it yet. And and with LIBOR doing what it's doing with two years and and now the 12-month the Treasury's yielding more than the S&P, the, the cracks are all there. And yet what we've really seen so far, we've seen a few down days, we've seen a few sharp rallies, which which is what you and I are used to seeing at these turning points. But there doesn't seem to be, to me, any real fear out there. We still seem to be shrugging everything off as, oh, this is just a wobble. But but the fact that we haven't had a wobble in almost two years, I'm amazed by the sort of sang-froid attitude of, of market participants. Well, you know, I... I uh... It's hard to disagree with. It's a uh, there's been no uh, cataclysmic uh, decline, but you know we 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 a couple of things is that we we are in a in a transition phase. Uh, it doesn't always have to happen that it's you know it's um doesn't have to happen that it's elevator down uh, right away. Uh, you know we 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 had that in October '87. People thought that was going to trigger a recession. It didn't. Recession came more than two years later. Um, and look, you go back to that last period. We, we would have the same conversation back in, uh, in in early 2008. We would have the same conversation. We would have had we would have seen the ABX indices um, uh, deteriorating sharply, uh, home prices coming down. We knew the market market was imploding, and we'd be talking about well, geez, you know, the stock market's only down 10 percent. And remember, you had a lot of brilliant Wall Street economists back then talking about. I mean, this is around the time. Uh, that Bear Stearns um, was going down for the count. People were talking about a soft landing in the U.S. economy. Uh, never mind late 2007, into the first half of 08, really up until the time that I would say Fannie and Freddie went into conservatorship and, you know, ahead of what happened at uh, at Lehman AIG and Merrill, you had a preponderance, preponderance of economists calling for a soft landing. If you remember in the summer of 08, the ECB actually raised interest rates and the Bernanke Fed went to a tightening bias. Remember that period. So, um, you know, uh, this is a this is a process. But but the market's giving you a tremendous amount of information. Um, taking a look at um, you know you're saying that there's no fear out there. Well, you know, look, the VIX right now is 22. It's already doubled the average of all of last year. Uh, you average out the VIX so far this year, it's more than 50 percent above the average of all of last year. Uh, and, um, you know, the years in the past um, that uh, that happened, it ushered in a totally different investment landscape. Uh, by the way, the last time that the VIX was behaving like it is now was heading into 2008, as an example. Uh, and who saw it was going to come down the pike at that time? So I'd say that no cataclysmic decline, uh, that much is true. It doesn't seem like that uh, anything is eroding dramatically. Uh, on the surface, that much is true. Um, but when you're taking a look, for example, the number of days uh, that, that that you're seeing these intraday swings of at least 1% in the broad indices is not the hallmark of a normal market. You know what's interesting? It comes back to what you just said about, um, you know, that nothing seems to be going awry. I'm hearing more and more about, well, you know, that last year, 2017, that was the abnormal year. 2018 so far, the first three months. Well, no, that's this is an abnormal. We're returning to a normal market environment. That's what I hear. 
from so many people. But no, that's not the story. The actual, the accurate story is that last year was one form of abnormality. This year is a different form of abnormality. We've just gone from one extreme to the other. And the extreme right now is that we are in a period of heightened volatility. And it's giving us a tremendous amount of information. Uh, and you're taking a look at beneath the surface. Um, you know, why is it, for example, that the 10-year Treasury note yield? Remember at the John Malden conference, we were supposed to break above, you know, 3%. It hasn't happened. We've actually just recently broken below the 200-day moving average or the 50-day moving average and the 10-year note yield. The, the 10-year bond has broken below the 200-day moving average. If we're going through this supposed global reflation story, uh, why aren't bond yields going up anymore? Why are they coming back down? Why have utilities smoked the transports of 500 basis points? High yield spreads are starting to widen out. Uh, and I'm not thinking that any of this move towards a more defensive posture is fully played out just yet. Um, but, you know, there's no sense in actually having to think that things have to turn cataclysmic. This could just be just a, a longer-term process. Um, but I think the markets are giving us a tremendous degree of information in the opening months of this year. And that is basically that we are into, I think, a, a new secular paradigm. Uh, and uh, there'll be some investors that will be playing by the old rules. My advice is that everybody should be playing by the new rules. And the new rules really are uh, classy late cycle investing, um, liquidity abundance to what I think is going to be a very challenging liquidity environment. And um, the prospect that recession risks, which I see now, according to the consensus, are only 17%, uh, that number will be rising. Whether we get a recession or not, I'll leave that for the debate. But recession risks in the next several months will be rising. And that means that there'll be fewer places to hide in the equity market. There will be places to hide, but there'll be fewer. And you really want to be trimming uh, your growth and cyclical exposure uh, right now. Yeah, so... so what are some of those places to run from? I mean, is it is it these famous tech stocks that we've seen taking the woodshed? Is it uh, some of the industrials? Or if, if energy is maybe a place you can stay, where, where do you really want to, to run from? Yeah, well, look, again, you know, this is a time we should all be putting our historian hat on. But you know what I find? I find that, uh, I, I find that people's memory fades. <laughs> you know, that's uh, really incredible. So, so, so what I'll say is that, you know, we just had one bubble burst, the cryptocurrencies, followed by another bubble bursting, which are the FANG stocks. Uh, then we have the added fund flow impact as to you know what the forced selling will happen among these leveraged ETFs, which are loaded up on these growth stocks. People think that they have uh, um, diversified portfolios with these ETFs. Actually, they might have saved themselves some money um, in terms of fees, uh, but they're highly concentrated. Uh, I would say right now, look, the, the, what you want to do is, is, you know, classic value investing wouldn't necessarily mean a focus on basic materials. Um, you know, you might want to even look at the golds where um, the stocks have lagged so far behind the prices. Um, I'd say energy's got some interesting dynamics to it right now. Um, you know, and I'll say, look, in 10 years, maybe oil's back down to $30 and everybody's got a you know driverless car, electric car. That's way down the future. If we're talking about the next one or two years, uh, I think that the oil price has a real firm floor to it. Uh, and, um, you know, we're getting more and more of these countries uh, joining uh, these output cut agreements that uh, OPEC and Russia initiated. The compliance level is extremely high. Uh, uh, the question marks over Iranian exports. I mean, I would say that, look, the, the proof of the pudding is always in the data. Uh, I'm actually very impressed that WTI is holding it at $64, $65 at the time when U.S. oil production 
just went to an all-time high of 10.4 million barrels a day. Uh, so something else is happening, whether it's in U.S. imports, whether it's on U.S. refining capacity, whether it's still maybe on uh, emerging market demand. Uh, but the truth is always in the price, and the oil price is hanging in very well. I look at the uh, U.S. stocks, for example. The energy stocks are priced for $50 oil, nowhere near $65. Um, so there's some nice downside there, even if oil price is correct. Um, and then I look at the Canadian situation where some of these mid and large cap stocks are trading at like four to five times cash flow for next year. Um, so right now in a world that I think, look, <laughs> you know, you've had this correction of the market, uh, you know, these valuations and the growth and the cyclicals have come back barely to last year's levels. So big deal. If you're looking for, um, uh, real value in a sector that always performs well late cycle, um, and you want to actually have some toes in the equity pool, um, I'd say the biggest call I have right now is on the energy side. And if you're looking for something that has been in the penalty box for a long time, that would only need a small catalyst. Uh, maybe it would be on um, uh, on pipeline expansion, or maybe it would be on rail expansion in terms of getting the surplus oil out of Canada. Um, maybe some policy changes. There always has to be a spark or a catalyst. But you get a spark or a catalyst wherever it is on a sector that's trading at such deep discounts. Uh, you know, the upside potential, even in a declining overall stock market, um, could be rather substantial. It wouldn't be the first time that energy stocks would be going up with the overall market actually not doing a whole lot. That happened in the first half of 2008. It happened back, you know, in 2000, 2001. It wouldn't be the first time. So energy is actually right now, if you can ask me, the area of the North American market I like the most, it would be in um, in, uh, in 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 energy. And I would also say that, uh, you know, the financials, uh, I think, will still be a pretty good place to be. You might say, well, you know, why would you want to be in, say, the U.S. banks if you're, um, you know, if you're nervous about the economy? Well, the bubble this time is not in the U.S. banking sector. It's in, it's in, the, uh, it's in the non-bank financial sector. There's other areas of the financials uh, that I'm worried about. I'm not really that worried about the U.S. banks. Uh, I think that they will hold in relatively well. So look, there's still some areas you can keep your toes in, but I'd say that if you're involved in the consumer cyclicals, uh, betting on uh, what the tax cuts were going to do, uh, no, I think actually the tax cuts pretty well are going into the utility bill, going into the gas tank. Uh, take a look at what's happening at the state and local government level, and the restraint there is providing to be a, proving to be a big offset to what's happening at the federal level. Uh, so consumer discretionary, not involved with. Um, you know, in terms of capital spending, I think that will be a big disappointment. Uh, and um, so the industrials, big question marks, consumer discretionary, big question marks. I think the tech cycle has pretty well run its course. Growth stocks are entering into a bear market. Uh, so you're really left with, if you want to be in the stock market, really my two favorite sectors would be energy and financials, and that's it. So, so Dave, uh, as you've as you've switched your stance and, and you, know, you talk to a lot of the biggest clients in the world, What's been the reaction, and and has it been different to previous times when you've changed, either from bullish to bearish or vice versa? Well, you know, what's interesting is that I did a uh, dinner in Toronto about two months ago uh, with the top 12 uh, CIOs on Bay Street. And I actually asked them at the time, I just posed the question, um, who thinks that the S&P 500 will finish the year lower than it is today? Now, this is before we started getting the drawdown in late January, just ahead of that. And I was surprised that half of the uh, portfolio managers put up their hand. I was really impressed. 
And, uh, well, half the room is actually bearish. Uh, but when I narrowed in the question, I said, well, so who thinks that the market will be lower on June 30th? Nobody put their hand. And I said, uh, well, geez, you know, for the six of you that said that your market's going to go down by year end, well, what happened? They said, oh, no, Dave, Dave, that's a second half story. <laughs> We're still bullish for the first half. And they're thinking, wow, that's, that's just perfect. <laughs> um, so I still think that, look, it's just, it's just, it's just human nature, right? And, and, and what I find, and, and this has not changed, is people think that they can actually time the peak. It's, uh, you know, and if we could all time the peak, you know, we'd all be, uh, uh, you know, sipping champagne in Marseille. But, you know, that's just not realistic. We'd all be wealthy if everybody could actually time the market. But I just find, once again, people think they can time the market. And what makes me nervous is people thinking that they can play the peak when I try and tell them that you're playing a peak. But what if that peak already happened on January the 26th? Uh, so speaking of peak, I was just in Vancouver checking out the uh, the housing market there. I can't let you go without a, a question about the Canadian housing market and, and what do you think of the, the prices that you've been seeing and, and whether that will turn over dramatically as well. He, well, Vancouver has been a big surprise because despite all the attempts to curb you know, the, the foreign investment component, and of course these are a lot of Chinese buyers that are price insensitive, uh, you had a minor correction in, uh, in Vancouver and it's picked right back up again. Um, and, and frankly, it's hard to know unless you just bar foreign investment and real estate in general. Uh, you know what, what you can really do about that, especially in Vancouver, which is a, let's face it, it's a, it's a landlocked uh, market from a supply side. And it's become a real social problem because most, most parents, I mean, their kids are living in their basement because they can't afford to buy a home. Uh, you know, and Toronto, of course, is um, has been in a, in a bubble of its own. And um, you know, unless the Bank of Canada raises interest rates dramatically, which is unlikely that they're going to follow the Fed to that extent, um, you know, I think that it's these macroprudential policies that have done on tightening up mortgage uh, guidelines that probably is going to help uh, um, produce a um, you know just a long period where prices move sideways to lower. It's interesting in Toronto, the condo market is still very strong. Uh, but single-family home prices were actually down 17% over the past year. Um, you know, it doesn't become a big financial event here. I mean, the mortgage market in Canada is completely different than the U.S. and most Canadians, actually, because of um, of loan-to-value uh, requirements that have a lot of skin in the game. So we're not going to have, I don't think, unless it turns really pernicious, that this turns into a domino impact, a deler- deleterious impact on on Canadian bank balance sheets. I'm not expecting that. You hear all sorts of horror stories from, uh, you know, in the U.S. media and hedge funds have long had a, a short position in the Canadian banks, which is very expensive for their clients because you have to pay that upfront 4% dividend if you do that. Um, but I think that, I think house prices in Toronto will go down uh, some more. I think the condo market probably still has to correct. Um, Vancouver is a very tough market. It's a very unique situation to really call that. But, you know, when people talk about, you know, the Canadian housing market, it's funny. People always say, let's talk about the Canadian housing market. They just want to talk about Vancouver and Toronto. Um, and it's interesting because people, you know, I speak to people in the States, and they think that Vancouver is, is the second largest city in Canada, but it's not. Montreal is. And Montreal right now has a nice buzz going on, but it is far from being anywhere close to a bubble. Ottawa, the nation's capital, is nowhere near a bubble. Uh, you have, I mean, would you dare say that Calgary or Edmonton, and Calgary and Edmonton in, in, in the Canadian context, you know, are not small cities. Um, they're certainly not in a bubble. So, you know, we tend to get carried away. Toronto, Vancouver, 30% of the Canadian market. There's another 70% out there that is really no, nowhere close to being in a bubble. And so this is what's different about 
about the United States is that, um, you know, when people were telling me back in 06 and 07, oh, don't worry, it's a regional bubble. I used to say, yeah, it's a regional bubble, just so happens to include all the regions. Uh, so, so this time around, it's like it's, it's, it's Toronto, Vancouver's, but 70% of the national market here is actually, you know, is, is very balanced. And I wouldn't say any, anywhere close to being in a bubble. Perfect. Rosie, listen, we, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it, it, it's always just uh, great to get a chance to listen to you speak. And for the people out there that, uh, that don't know how to find you, perhaps you could clue them in because I suspect after this, you're going to have a whole bunch of new people that want to listen to every word that you, uh, that you have to say. Sure. Well, you can you can uh, go to the Gluskin Chef website, uh, G L U S K I N S H E F F, or you can um, email me directly, uh, and my email address is uh, drosenberg at gluskinchef dot com, uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, probably the easiest thing to do is either go on the Gluskin Chef website, it's a click, uh, or just give me an email, and I'd be happy to get you on a trial for my daily breakfast with Dave and. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, take it from there. It's it's absolutely required reading for me every morning. In fact, I'm going to go and read it right now, seeing as I know you published it shortly before we start this conversation. So, Dave, thank you again so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Sure thing. Have a great weekend. So sometimes I wish Dave wasn't so uh, smart and, uh, and that his previous calls hadn't been so good because that, that was not a, a very positive scenario he outlined there. Well, look, it's not often I say this, but you are the the second best Rosenberg on this call, I'm afraid. I'll um, take it. I'll take it. Uh, yeah, look, Dave is uh, he's just phenomenal. I mean, he's there are very few uh, economists out there on the street that have the grasp he has of the entire picture. And you know, every time I hear him speak, every time I talk to him, uh, it, it really is an education. And I think you're right. I mean, I'm interested um, – that I was really interested in, in the reaction he had to these calls because he's he's my benchmark. Every year when I see him at the, the Malden Conference, he's the first man up and I listen to every single word he says because when I when I detect a shift in his positioning, you know, I know it's time to pay attention and, and that's very much what we got this year, which is why I was so keen to have him come on the show. So um, for the, those people out there listening that, that don't follow Dave on Twitter, um, you, you really should. And for those of you out there who are in the finance industry, um, do email him and get on a free trial of Breakfast with Dave because it's uh, it's what you just listen to uh, in your inbox every morning, and he's uh, he's exceptional. Yeah. So in terms of his call, I mean, how do you think this will play out here? We've obviously seen a pretty rocky first quarter, uh, and and you know, like we were talking about, there's a confluence of factors, but. You know, if you had to kind of hedge out what will be the main things going forward, do you think it'll be all about the Fed? Do you think it'll be uh, some of the speculation that we've seen in the equity market and other markets curbed? Or, or how do you all see this playing out, Grant? It's, it's always all about the Fed these days, I'm afraid. Um, I, I wish that weren't the case, but but it is. And they seem very determined to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, and I think that's really just starting to sink into market participants. And yeah, again, we've what we've what we've really seen is volatility come back. We haven't, you know, fallen twenty percent. We haven't, you know, you're not seeing those headlines on CNBC, mm-hmm. the ridiculous arbitrary, you know, Dow enters bear market because it fell twenty point zero one percent. We haven't seen that yet, but but this reintroduction of volatility to me is so important, and we've spoken about this uh, on the podcast before. Just the fact, I mean, yesterday I saw a great chart posted on Twitter that showed there were ten. 1% moves in either direction yesterday in the QQQs, the NASDAQ ETF. Um, that's the kind of intraday volatility we haven't seen in you know a couple of years now. So volatility is back, 
And volatility equals unpredictability. And when you see things like the FANG stocks cracking the way they have, when you see the remarkable um, fall from grace of Tesla, uh, these are red alerts for people to start paying attention at the very least. And so, you know, when Dave talks about hiding in the energy stocks, that it is time to look for things that are unloved. Um, but, but fully understanding that if, look, if this market does go down, and there is every chance it will at some point, if it does, I mean, nowhere's going to be safe. It's about finding the, the places that will get either get hurt the least or will bounce back the quickest. And uh, it, it's hard at this point to make a case for that being the fang stocks. I, I just have to ask you one more follow-up question. He, he briefly mentioned the gold stocks. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious I what you think. Bite. Of- I didn't even bite. Um, <laughs> yeah, look um, – the gold stocks have underperformed the metal uh, enormously. And if you look back through uh, market meltdowns through periods of inflation, through periods of deflation, there's actually a Goldman Sachs report put out this week that examines how gold has done in periods of inflation and deflation. And it does pretty well through both. Um, but as a, one of the trades that I suggested when we did the uh, when I did my presentation at uh, the SIC this year was exactly that long the, the gold mining shares and, and short the metal against it as a hedge just to try and capture that outperformance. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting space. It is definitely a place where people like to hide in times of market turmoil. Uh, and they are, you know, on their knees as they have seemed to spend most of the last three, four years. So it's definitely a sector that I think people should be paying attention to. All right. Well, amazingly, that concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance. But before we leave you, everybody after three... Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always, always, always trade responsibly. We will be back next week with another dear friend of mine, Luke Groman, and we are going to talk about China, oil, the Chinese currency, and gold. And it will be a fascinating conversation, I assure you. In the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Ventures in Finance, then we'd love to hear from you, particularly if it's about James's Star Wars pyjamas. Send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. Meanwhile, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Yes, leave those reviews. We love those reviews. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging around Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. Not in any kind of sketchy way, I like to. No. Add. Just, we're, just, we're just there. Yeah. Loitering more than hanging around. No, that's probably worse. Anyway, never mind. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. I'm at Aces Rose. And you can find me at AIF James. That's it from us. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.